There was a sense within the newsroom that after particularly the first Trump election that we were far too Washington focused, that we needed to be out in the community, we needed to be out in the country and hear and understand people in their communities and bring that back to Washington and have people who are committed to those communities to bring those perspectives. Because I think it was clear from that election in particular to a lot of folks in media that we didn't really understand the country. We didn't understand the social currents that were gripping communities all across this nation. That is Washington Post reporter Arelis Hernandez explaining why the Post dispatched her to Texas. In her move, she chose to land in San Antonio to learn more about what's at the heart of South Texas communities, including the people, their cultures, their ways of life, their economies, and life and politics along the Texas-Mexico border. In part one of this episode, we begin with learning more about the personal side of Arelis Hernandez, why she chose a career in journalism, how she ended up at the Washington Post, and what the rest of the country is learning about Texas from her articles. So first of all, you are a native Washingtonian in the District of Columbia. I am. Born and raised? Uh, Born in the city and raised in the suburbs in Maryland. And there is a definite Mason-Dixon line between Maryland and Virginia, there are different places, but if you can believe it, I, I grew I grew up sort of around all three places, Northern Virginia, the district, and Southern Maryland. Okay. And then what drove you to, I got a journalism degree in college, and one of the things that drove me down that path was I was in middle school during Watergate. And some of my classmates... Bob Ehrlichman's father, John, was senior domestic policy advisor for President Nixon. That'll do um, it. <laughs> Nancy Rehnquist's father, William, was a justice on the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. later to become chief justice. And Kerry Kleindienst's father, Richard, was Nixon's third attorney general. You and just so all meshed into it. <laughs> <laughs> and sort of to tie back with your role at the Washington Post. I delivered the Evening Star, what? which was the afternoon competitor <laughs> yes. um, to the morning Washington Post. So I would come home from middle school, turn on the Watergate hearings, grab the papers and fold the papers and stuff them in my bag as I'm watching the Watergate hearings. So all of that is sort of what led me to a career in journalism. So tell me what drove you because you're you're younger than I am. Yeah, no, I've, I've thought about this uh, quite a bit now that I'm um, passing the 15-year mark on my career. (laughs) It's like, how did I get into this mess? Um, And and frankly, like my parents are from Puerto Rico. And in Puerto Rico, at the time and that they grew up, both my grandparents uh, were avid newspaper readers. And so newspaper reading was a part of my childhood, something I saw my parents do. My mom mostly tuned into local news. And so there was always news around. and, and, And that was something that was sort of ubiquitous of my childhood. But I was the kind of kid that was interested in everything and wanted to know about everything. And my way of, of coping with, thing, with things is to understand them, to pick them apart and, and see, you know, cause and effect. And when I was 16 in, in high school, uh, an English teacher sort of put an application in front of me for something called J-Camp, Journalism Camp, and very creative, right, J-Camp. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know what this is. And it was sponsored by the Asian American Journalists Association. And that year, the camp had been advertised as having taken place in, in Washington, D.C. I applied, and I forgot completely about it. 
that January, I get a phone call from the organizers of this camp that I had gotten in and was like, oh, thank you. I forgot <laughs> that I had even applied for this, but this is cool. And so that summer, I got to go to the campus of George Washington University, stayed in those um, freshman dorms, notorious for not having uh, air conditioning in D.C. summers. And the experience completely changed my life. The campus sort of structured in a way that it's to introduce you to the rigors of journalism, but also to teach you networking skills. And it was because of that camp and the mentors that I had made uh, in that experience that actually years later brought me to the Post. It's kind of a, a strange story. So I had a journalism professor who gave us an automatic F on the entire project we were working on. If we ever misspelled someone's name or got their age wrong, I'm assuming you probably had. Oh some. yeah, that sounds like a freshman class at the University of Maryland's journalism <laughs> school, Philip Merrill Journalism School. Yeah, oh yeah, we got automatic Fs if we misspelled anything, if we got the time wrong, and so we would do these exercises where, you know, we'd get a certain set of facts, we'd have to write it into a news format very quickly. Any mistake. Uh, was an automatic F, and I almost failed that class. <laughs> <laughs> so first job in journalism was what? My first job, I didn't. I graduated in 2009 and had done all these internships in lots of different places, and I thought I was really prepared for the rigors of the, of the industry. I'm like, somebody's got to hire me. But I entered into the business just as it was cracking in all, this, you know, all places. And my first job was at a uh, family-owned magazine, higher education magazine, in Fairfax, Virginia. It was not at all what I was hoping for. for <laughs> wasn't the Washington job. Post. It wasn't the Washington Post. It wasn't, goodness, it wasn't the Associated Press where I had worked or the Baltimore Sun or the WashingtonPost.com. I mean, it was none of those places where I had done these, like, you know, badass internships. It was this higher education magazine. But it turned out to be exactly what I needed uh, at the time because... I was able to take all these skills that I had, like, you know, fresh in my mind from college because I did this weird thing where my degree is in broadcast journalism, and I had every intention of being a Spanish-language television news anchor. Um, and that didn't work out because I hated being in a studio. Um, but I kept with the degree and started working at the campus newspaper because I'm like, well, I can do video-type things for newspapers. So I took all those skills to that first job. Um, and quickly elevated from being a staff writer to a web editor. And that actually being in Fairfax, Virginia, kind of like elevated my starting salary a little bit. <laughs> so that 10 months later, when the Orlando Sentinel called me uh, saying that they had a job opening, I was starting off in a pretty nice place in my first newspaper job. That must have been a fascinating time because I know here in Texas, when Evan Smith helped launch the Texas Tribune, he, as he was hiring people, he said, you cannot be platform specific. Don't come in here and tell me I'm only a print person. I'm only a radio person. I'm only a TV person. You have to be able to communicate in all platforms and on all platforms. And so that was sort of the the, the space you were entering. Yeah, no. Um, I, sometimes I joke with myself and say, oh, it's because you weren't good at any of them that you just kind of floated <laughs> between all three or all four of the different mediums. But no, for whatever reason, I had the foresight in college to realize that I couldn't just be one thing and that I needed to be more fluid 
in the platforms. And plus, I wanted to be more creative and have freedom to tell stories in different uh, media formats. So, I mean, in college, I produced a documentary. I worked on uh, the radio station. I produced the first multimedia piece for the Diamondback newspaper, you know, at, at on campus. And I even started my own bilingual newspaper. Oh, so, wow. you know, I was very busy in college. I was really thinking I was going to get that big, bad job once I graduated. But it has paid so many dividends in my career. I've been able to, again, just like move between mediums and do the kind of work that I think is unique. I think it's different. Um, I tend to think of stories visually. When I write them, I think of them sort of in cinematic scenes. And I, um, had that, I've been fortunate that that's led to really awesome collaborations with folks who do uh, video and photo in particular. We're going to come back to this, but I think one perfect example is the video that you did for Uvalde. But I'm going to save that and I want to come back to that. So uh, when did you end up at The Post? I spent uh, in Orlando about three and a half years when I had won, uh, was part of a team that won a writing award and went to Washington to claim that award. And that was coming off of the coverage of Trayvon Martin. And when I came to D.C., that mentor from J Camp somehow found my email or had been tracking me all this time and emailed me. He was at the Washington Post at the time. And he asked me if I was interested in just doing informal interviews with a bunch of editors that he had set up for me. And I said, okay, sure. You know, well, after I claim this award, I'll go over to the offices. And it was very informal. I mean, none of the editors even knew I was coming. <laughs> he just kind of set these, these up willy-nilly. But, you know, something in those interactions was memorable to, to these editors. And six months later, they offered me a job at the Washington Post. And so you moved. I moved back to my hometown uh, from Orlando, Florida in 2014 and started my first day at the Post was the 31st of March. And my dad, when I first decided that I was going to pursue journalism, he he wasn't discouraging, but he wasn't exactly the most encouraging. He's an engineer. And he said, oh, I guess this means you're going to you know, live in my house for the rest of your life. Um, <laughs> And funny enough, the first day at the Washington he wanted to drive me. He was late to work uh, to his own job. He was that proud? He was that proud. He drove me to my first day. And apparently editors were watching from the window offices <laughs> because when I came up the elevator, they were like, was that your dad? <laughs> it was very embarrassing for me for my first day. But no, my dad was was like... Finally, you know, he's not a man of many words, but had that was his way of demonstrating how proud he was. When you first started, what was your your task? What was your uh, what was your focus? The job they offered me was a local politics and government reporter. So I was sent to cover the county in which I grew up in, okay. in Prince George's County, Maryland, which is unique because it's one of the most afflu affluent majority African-American jurisdictions in the country. So I think I had a very unique uh, schooling and and childhood in Prince George's County, and now was my chance to look at it from uh, with a critical eye from the government and politics perspective. And it was tough. <laughs> it was really tough. Prince George's is so used to having negative press coverage that they basically close themselves off to any media, and some of it for good reason, some of it just an overreaction. Uh, so it took a lot of trying to build trust with the elected officials, uh, with the government officials, and learning how to discern what is corruption or what is a, a scandal versus what is incompetence, and knowing and discerning 
when to push the button on those kinds of stories. It was quite an education. So how did you end up and when did you end up here in San Antonio? Yes. So in, in the course of doing my work as a, as a local metro reporter, I was tasked and asked many times to do national stories. And so this meant covering nat- natural disasters. In 2017, I was sent to cover Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, which is um, my ancestral home, my, where my family is, where I spent a lot of time as a child. And that kind of changed the course of my career at the Post. Uh, and I was relied upon to do big national breaking news stories. And so I shifted from Metro over to National. And an opportunity came up to cover the southern border. Now, I'd always been interested in immigration. I had been basically been raised by immigrants, particularly Salvadoran immigrants in the D.C. metro area. My church that where I grew up was all immigrants who had many of whom had crossed the border themselves and had gotten amnesty under the Reagan administration. And so I this is my backdrop. But I wasn't sure about, I was one of the few Latinas <laughs> at the Washington Post. I wasn't sure how I felt about being asked to go, you know, the lone Spanish speaker to go, you know. Cover a, a Hispanic-rooted uh, story. Right, right, in Texas. I didn't know anything about Texas. I had interned in Houston, which is about as close as I got to sort of the Texas ethos one summer with the Associated Press, but... Which, which for some of our listeners, they need to know, is not on the border. <laughs> no, no, quite far from it and quite a whole world in and of itself. And I, was, I wasn't I was sure it was the job that I wanted, and especially because I was hoping that I'd get elevated to like a campaign reporter or something like that. I wanted that, you know, in, in Washington, at the Washington Post, politics is king, right? And so I was hoping that that might be my path. But the more I thought about it uh, and the more time I spent in Washington, I was living in the city at the time, figured I needed a break from from D.C. And that covering the border is was at that time one of the most important stories of the Trump administration, which is what we were um, experiencing at the time. So in October 2019, I packed up my stuff and, you know, was kind of nervous, but I had made moves like this before in my career and came down to San Antonio. My dad, again, came with me to scope out <laughs> apartments. He wouldn't have missed that opportunity. Um, and I absolutely fell in love with San Antonio. Now, you did not have, uh, was you didn't have a predecessor here. No, no. I think years and years ago, there we had had Texas correspondence. Uh, um, in Austin, like 20, 30 years ago, I remember right. it was Dave. I'm forgetting his last name. I'll think of it in a minute. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't have memory of those times, but um, I. So my move was part of a larger movement within the Washington Post to put reporters out in the country. Uh, for the most part, most of us have, were deploying from Washington to cover events in these various communities, and there was some reticence within newsroom leadership to establishing bureaus in the same way that the Associated Press does, or the New York Times does. Whatever we. Did, we wanted to do it differently and to have a different mandate. And so thus became the America team. And now we have several correspondents across the country, two in California, Colorado, Florida, upstate New York, New England, and Kansas. That are focused on this hemisphere? That are focused on covering the stories of import. And there was a sense within the newsroom that after particularly the first Trump election, that we were far too Washington focused, that we needed to be out in the community, we needed to be out in the country and hear and understand people in their communities 
and bring that back to Washington and have people who are committed to those communities to bring those perspectives. Because I think it was clear from that election in particular to a lot of folks in media that we didn't really understand the country. We didn't understand the social currents that were gripping communities all across this nation. This is just a quick sidebar, but I remember someone from the Smithsonian coming to San Antonio and talking about a, a project they were working on, and it was called Mexico, Our Distant Neighbor. And every eyebrow went up in the room and said, well, they're not distant to us. They're right here. And so to your point, sometimes the Washington perspective gets too far removed. I want to talk about your your Texas colleagues. I know you have Molly Hennessy Fisk in Houston. She focuses more on politics, doesn't she? Texas politics? Yes. As part of the America team, we've so there are a few of us correspondents who are focused on sort of that red state, blue state uh, dynamics and looking at how the politics were um, shaping communities and discourse, right? I think there was some sense before that communities shape the politics. And in this, in this case, it was politics that are shaping everything that we're talking about mm-hmm. nowadays. And so Molly is part of that, was hired as part of that um, mandate as well to, to look at more of the political currents that were shaping discourse in communities across the country. I so, mean, in particular in Texas. Okay. And do you have any other colleagues in Texas? It's just the two of us. We have a lot of colleagues who come into Texas all the time. It's a big state, uh, like Caroline Kitchener, who covers a lot of our abortion coverage. So I want to go back. You talked about the Donald Trump days, and you wanted to get into politics, writing about politics, and you were tasked with covering the border. During the course of that, you wrote several articles after the November 2020 election about uh, specifically the one I remember is how did Donald Trump win Zapata County, which would have been heavily Democratic for years and years and years. And you did a you did a deep dive um, into that. What did you find? What sort of struck you from uh, that research that you did uh, writing those articles? I think the most conclusive finding that was that like people in Washington completely misunderstand Hispanics and the Hispanic vote. And even the folks who are tasked with, you know, the think tanks and the, and the, you know, policy groups in Washington that talk about the Latino vote just completely don't understand and how different (laughs) and how, you know, the, the, each community has their own way of thinking about politics and the way that they express it. And so, even from one side of the valley to the other, it's a completely different set of dynamics. And a lot of it is tied to even family dynamics mm-hmm. and and old history, right? History about who was in charge 100 years ago and <laughs> who yes. is in charge now. Um, it's uh, education, right? Uh, and, and the fact that, you know, particularly in Zapata County, that the economy of the place, what do people, most people do in those places? And in Zapata oil and gas for a lot of people who travel out to the Permian Basin and they depended on those jobs, right? And so for a candidate like uh, President Joe Biden at the time um, to say things that weren't exactly the most positive about oil and gas, absolutely tanked in a place like Zapata where that's their livelihoods, right? And I think to put a finer point on sort of all of these dynamics for me, it was that people vote their interests no matter what their, you know, ethnic background might be. They're going to vote their interests. And those interests change depending on where you are and what your economy looks like. So uh, what I recall from that article was that it was more of a Trump phenomenon and not a Republican phenomenon. Because I think what you pointed out 
was that a lot of um, the folks in Zapata County who had traditionally voted Democrat flipped over, voted for Trump, but then went back and they did not vote for Senator Cornyn or uh, many of the other Republicans on the ballot. They kind of voted Democrat all the way down. So it seemed to be more of a, a Trump phenomenon and not a Republican tidal wave. Again, I think that it's due to the fact that people are voting their interests in what they know. And in a place like Zapata, it's very small. Everyone who's running locally knows each knows other. <laughs> and if you don't know them, your chances of winning an election are not going to fare well at all. So if I'm, you know, Joe Smo or Jose Diaz, who works at the local, you know, school district, and my cousin is running for the justice of peace, and my uncle is, you know, the sheriff or whatnot, like, and they happen to be Democrats, well, I'm just going to vote for them. It's not about ideology for me. Or if my Uncle Joe, who's the sheriff, has connections to the person who's running for Congress in that particular district, and he tells me that that's the person I need to vote for, that's who I'm voting for, right? Like, it, it's these these family connections, these community connections that are valued, I think, far more than any ideological strain. And, and I do think that there is something to be said for the appeal that Trump had in a lot of these uh, communities, particularly on Hispanic men, uh, Tano men, um, that is worth, there's been lots of think pieces about them. And I think it's worth to, to dive into a little bit more. And I think Gerardo Cadava has a, a book speaking to some of these things. But what your interests are, what your economy is, what your family is doing and how they vote, I think takes far more preeminence over what ideologically you think should be happening across the country. I think this is a really important point that a lot of people don't understand, because if you go to Zapata County, you said a minute ago, it's very heavy oil and gas. So when the uh, the Clinton campaign was talking about uh, renewable energy and fracking and oil and gas is bad, we need to go more with renewables, that's how many of them make their living. And then that cows are bad for the environment because of the methane gas they produce. There are more cows than people in Zapata County. So a lot of the messaging, even the pro-choice issue, because in a heavy Hispanic Catholic family-oriented area like Zapata County, they may have voted for Democrats, but they they leaned more towards the pro-life side. So it does deserve a deeper dive, and I'm not sure. that That's why you can't just look at it as a monolith, and it, it was an interesting phenomenon. And, and credit to both Cisnero and Guayar, who, you know, faced off in, in the last congressional race in, uh, in that district in Texas 28. I think they, you know, both understood how non-ideological uh, their particular constituents are. Uh, yes. And realize that if they were going to win, they needed to sit at their dining room table and talk. Guayar knows this. He's known this for a long time. Um, he, and, you know, that's why he's been in power as long yes. as he's had. But to credit, you know, credit to Cisneros that she learned that along the way, you really do need to sit down and talk with people. And they want you to take the time to, like, convince them and to present the arguments. And, and, I, and not to say that, you know, people are fickle in their beliefs or whatever, but they if if the argument is made, if the effort, more than anything, is the effort is made, and I'm, I'm speaking to the Democratic Party now, people are more willing to listen and to accept your message. Henry Gwed is is a unique animal in that, you know, his brother is the current sheriff of Webb County. His sister had served in office for a while. So I don't know that is at least in Webb County, I don't know that anyone 
um, doesn't know one of the cuellos. And Henry's been at this for a long time. He's mastered the art of retail politics, and he knows what message to use with what audience. And I mean that in a good way. I don't mean he's he's trying to maneuver things in a bad way. I mean, um, if he's speaking to a crowd that's concerned about uh, border safety, border security, then he will address that if he's speaking to another crowd. So he doesn't just push out an ideological uh, message. And he is pro-life, so he has this unique sense of support that he's had over the years, and I think that's why he gets along with, he's very close to Congressman Jody Arrington from Lubbock. Um, he's close to several other, uh, Tony Gonzalez, Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez from the 23rd District. They work very well together on a variety of issues. And I think that's exactly what a region like, you know, the upper Rio Grande Valley and, and Laredo uh, and, and Points West and Del Rio and whatnot, that's what that position demands uh, and, and, you know, parts of southern San Antonio as well. And that piece of comparing Cisneros and, and Cuellar, uh, I think that Cisneros in particular tapped into a sense among younger Laredo residents, as well as particularly Valley uh, residents, educated young people who are looking to make their mark on the world, who are thinking of things differently than their parents did, or probably as an evolution of what their parents uh think and view about the world and, you know, want things like universal health care are thinking about, you know, education and what that will look like for their next generation. Because, you know, that happens to include, I'm a millennial, so that happens to include my generation where, you know, we keep getting all these messages that we're growing into a society where <laughs> we're not going to be as affluent as our parents that we, you know, I, I at 30 34, I bought my first house. My parents bought their first house when they were 25, fresh off of coming from Fort Bobrico, <laughs> right? Like I had to wait. I didn't have the money to do it. And I think those that level of dissatisfaction is resonating across a, a generation. The question is whether they'll go out and vote, right? Like, and, and whether that will manifest itself into coalitions. But I do think that that sentiment is there. I have three children that range from 19 to 25, and they seem stunned when I tell them that when I grew up in a cul-de-sac with seven families, only two of the seven of the parents had a college degree. All the rest were blue-collar workers. And I grew up in a very unique environment in McLean, Virginia, a suburb of Washington. Uh, when we, I left Texas when, we, when I was eight. And I think they find that almost an impossible goal to reach, that you could be a blue-collar worker and live in the same neighborhood as college-educated people because today we tend to self-segregate more. And I do think the current generation, Gen X and millennials, uh, most of them would rather rent than own. And some of it is convenience and some of it is economic. They, they can't afford it. They would rather Uber than drive. And so there, there is, we're, this economy is about to go through a massive change because of this. I imagine I'm thinking of the, the home building industry. What happens there? We're already now seeing new neighborhoods going up that are built to rent and not to own. So interesting comments on, you know, the, the economic dynamic of, of Texas. And that will inevitably change, you know, or warrant a change in the political response as well. I mean, when you hear about folks like, you know, Senator Mitt Romney saying that he's not 
going to run again and in part, you know, that he wants a newer generation. I think there is a lot of thirst for a new generation that will respond. I mean, for example, there is very little legislation that is responding to like the digital realities that we're facing. <laughs> it's so the law is, is so slow behind the innovations that are happening and the abuses um, that are taking place in, in, in spaces like social media that, I, I you know, it it is at one point. Uh, once millennials and, and Gen Z figure out <laughs> where they're situated in the world, um, that the politics are going to have to change. I, I heard an FBI agent say in the old days, it was a lot easier catching criminals because you could scout out their house or you could find out where they lived. And today, since so much of it is online theft, fraud, uh, abuse, that it is very, very difficult. And we tend to be a day late and a dollar short in tackling that, to your point. So let's talk about you. You covered some politics and you you cover the border. Um, obviously, the border <laughs> is going to be a major uh, focal point of the 2024 election. And so I'm assuming that's going to be inc- you're going to be covering some of that. Yeah, no, I, I'm sort of in the unique position where I work very closely with two colleagues who are in Washington who do a lot of the policy for uh, customs, U.S. Customs and Border Protection and then the court side of it in USCIS. And so my the way that I interpreted the job for me is being in proximity is talking to the community members and to the migrants uh, on that that sort of face of the prism, right? If we were three faces of the uh, three points of the triangle, that that's sort of my job. And so... My role, uh, and we're still figuring this out. Like we, you know, we know we. A lot of it is just sort of what the the news of demand uh, demands of the day. But I think our challenge is going to be figuring out how to bring truth to the narratives that are going to inevitably you know collide during the election season to figure out. Okay, this is true. This is not true. This is partly true. And what the reality is on the ground for the people who are being most affected. So that includes Border Patrol agents. That includes charity workers who are working in this space. This includes the elected officials and sheriffs who are, you know, in these border communities who are dealing uh, with ever-changing, you know, currents of of what each policy change might mean. And so uh, that's going to be my focus and trying not to get caught up in the back and forth that takes place often that is often full of the mistruths. border secure. No, yes, it's not. Exactly. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Yeah, no, I, I remember asking, I think, the Border Patrol chief at, at the time, you know, what is what does that mean? Like, what does a secure border mean? Because, like, we have Border Patrol all over this. There's like sure. entire, you know, pieces of this that are cut, has wall. Like, what? what will be the metric? And I've never gotten an answer to that. What will be the metric for? saying, okay, now the border's secure. And I think it's sort of this elusive concept uh, that that no one's willing to add metrics to it because then they can be held accountable. To well, and, and I think I've, I've, I've often been surprised by elected officials' inability to answer that question. And because in my mind, in the history of the country, the border has never been secure. It's just like cybersecurity. You're never going to be totally secure. It's how do you manage the risk and are we making progress in managing the risk and are we doing enough, you know, immigration and security, they're a push-pull phenomenon. 
Uh, part of the pool is the economic prosperity here, and we need workers. So there are jobs available. And the push is the economic strife or the civil unrest or the uh, political... Um, Upheaval, yeah. Yes, and uh, that that makes people want to leave their country uh, to come to a country that's more safe. It is surprising. And now, have you had a chance to talk to the new uh, U.S. Border Patrol chief, Jason Owens, who was head of the Del Rio sector? Uh, no, no, not yet. I haven't had a chance to talk to him. I um, I had met with Raul Ortiz. Mm-hmm. Um, I Jason Owens. I'm trying to. I think he got appointed after the the crisis under the bridge in Del Rio. Yes, I think, I, I, I think he was uh, appointed three or four months ago. Right, right. He's moved uh, moved along quite quickly. Yes. <laughs> no, I haven't had a chance to to meet with him. That's one of the things. I try to do. I, I must say, I had a lot more access during the Trump administration to, you know, Border Patrol officials and doing ride-alongs and getting a glimpse of, you know, what it is they see at the ports than I do under the Biden administration. <laughs> it's been a little. It's been a little tougher. They're 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 responsive and getting us information for context for stories and things like that. But um, in terms of seeing what's and meeting with the people who. Um, who are making these decisions, who are seeing these these changes um, with different groups of people, not not as open. You know, I uh, when I interviewed Congressman Tony Gonzalez for this podcast, I played an audio clip of uh, President Clinton giving the 1995 State of the Union address. And he was complaining about the 300,000 illegal entries during the course of the year. We get that much almost in a month. And so perspective is is everything, and uh, it requires all hands on deck. And we just, as a country, um, we can continue to treat the symptoms or we can try to treat the cause. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that at some point we're going to reach a breaking point, that we just need to come together and try to solve the problem. I know. I think we've reached uh, several different breaking points and different <laughs> pieces have just fallen off. Uh, you know, it's funny. I, I One of the things I struggle with covering the border is that, like, ultimately the story is the same, right? Like, because each administration is going to do what they can, pull whatever threads they can to try and get control or, as you say, manage the risks or figure out what their stamp on the border is going to be. And ultimately this all lies in the hands of Congress, Congress has to act on a lot of these things to sort of loosen up the constraints that the executive branch is currently under and the courts are now litigating, you know, ad nauseum, right? They, there isn't much room to fix unless you get money <laughs> from Congress and the laws change. And I think we just saw that with this most recent ruling against DACA. You know, what's created by executive order can um, can be killed by executive order. And it does take Congress. It takes an act of Congress, if you will. I'm reminded of a statement that was made by Senator, former Senator Ben Sass from Nebraska um, during one of the Supreme Court. I think it was Justice Kavanaugh, his confirmation hearings. And Senator Sass said this. Policymaking is supposed to be done in the body that makes laws. That means that this is supposed to be the institution dedicated to political fights. If we see lots and lots of protests in front of the Supreme Court, that's a pretty good litmus test barometer of the fact that our republic isn't healthy. Because people shouldn't be thinking they are protesting in front of the Supreme Court. They should be protesting in front of this body. 
As Ed Hernandez points out, it will take more than court rulings and executive orders to fix our immigration system. What the American people are demanding now is for Congress to stop fighting over immigration and to start solving immigration. That does it for part one of this episode, coming up in part two. Where were you and what were you doing when you first heard that this was happening? I was taking my mom to get her hair done when I got the first ping from an editor about something happening in Uvalde. So I immediately checked the Facebook page, called the local police department, and I could not get any straight answers from anyone. And if you recall, the school system was updating on the Facebook page. And at first it said there's a shooting at the school and something about this one, my editor had the right instinct. And she just said, you just have to go. Part two of this episode is available wherever you get your podcasts. Beyond the Bite is a production of Aldrete Strategic Partners and is edited by Nick Chamberlain of Every Word Media. As always, we thank you for listening.